today's word of the podcast. Once again, I'm not I, I'm not aware of it. Um, Michael's gonna gonna plug us with that word. What is it, Michael? Uh, never ending. Never ending. Oh, why why is that your choice of word? Uh, well, because you asked me to come up with the word uh, just a while ago, uh, and I I really thought, uh, man. I, I hope these hiccups that I have right now don't get in the way. Um, they're they're kind of never ending, um, which is actually a concern that one of my a good friend of mine is always worried when she gets hiccups that it'll last forever uh, and she'll just die with hiccups. Um, it's like a deep seated fear of hers, I think. So so I thought of that, um, but I guess the times also call for me to say say something. Uh, like uh, you know, the struggle against depression is never ending. Uh, the, the struggle mm-hmm. against uh, the one percent is never ending. Uh, these systems that we're we're trapped in uh, are are needing redesign, uh, and and you know, the problems that they create seem never ending. Uh, I guess that's that's something uh, profound that I can say. But really, it, it's just hiccups. Well, Michael and I are both buddies. Both uh, we, we came to know of each other in Design for America, and he is now an alum. You're a, you're a UT alum officially. Is that correct? Yep. You're almost out of here. Almost wasn't. Really? Uh, off of a weird technicality, they uh, said that I had one class with an incomplete grade, which I did. Um, um. But that that was going to completely disqualify me from graduating this semester, and I'd have to reapply to graduate uh, during the summer semester after the grade was input. Uh, which, oh, honestly, like there's this there's an entire day that I wasn't graduated because of this technicality, and within that day, I really grew attached to the idea of just never applying to graduate uh, and having done the graduation ceremony, but not technically have had a degree. Uh, right. I, something about that seemed really attractive to me, um, but then my professor input the grade, and they auto graduated me and said, "Congrats!" And it was just through this email uh, <laughs> that it didn't even it didn't even say like, "Hey, Michael, congrats!" It was like, "Dear applicant, uh, congratulations! Your grade has been inputted, and you're now <laughs> now done with this university." Uh, <laughs> So, so that's how you you graduated through an email, essentially. Through an impersonal email that said, "Dear applicant," yeah. Oh no, that's bureaucracy for you. Um, so we're here to talk about human-centered design and its various applications. And I think Michael is someone I personally learned a lot from through the design thinking process. I guess the nine months that I've known him. It feels like a lot longer, but it's been it's been only only nine months. Um, but for those who are listening and aren't too aware of what human-centered design is, uh, how could you explain it to them? Or how would you go about explaining it to them? Uh, doing something for others and actually caring about the person you're doing it for. Uh, I think that's just the, the fundamental. We're in a world where a lot of people 
exchange services and products and and things that they're designing uh, for a market uh, for clients for for an audience. Um, so, in the broadest sense, just paying attention to who your audience is, getting to know them on a very personal level uh, as much as you can, um, and then designing for them accordingly. Uh, yeah, because design's everywhere. Uh, it's in the it's in, it's in the experiences we all have, uh, and so that's that's my like 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 working definition of it. Um, Mm-hmm. But it, it's also representing a, an entire movement of people in the design world and in different, different, different parts of the design world, really, because it starts with, with like one, one writer and then spreads like like wildfire over the course of decades, uh, to where they're teaching it in in schools now, uh, right. and they're they're really trying to package it for anyone uh, to use. At the the Center for Integrated Design is really just. Out, outward facing to, to all the students at UT uh, to learn human-centered design, thought, uh, which is again just you know spreading that that uh, the gospel of paying attention to others, uh, which yeah, people remarkably don't do that well. I, I think that's the the flip side to it is is uh, if this sounds like very commonsensical, uh, well it is, but also uh, there's a a lot of examples of things that aren't really designed with the the user at the end of it. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're the result of like weird business practices or uh, engineering practices. And Right. And I think the way I came across it was that, I guess, it's more of like a structured way of thought, but at the same time, it's this nonlinear process. So whenever I was presented to at first, it was, you know, you have like these five steps on a like I guess in like a very basic way but those five steps can like branch out to like 10 different things so I think it's like a structured way of keeping the user in your mind as you begin to research and ideate and design um, an experience or a product for a particular person and like you said it's something that is being employed in a lot of different industries and it is growing um but how did you come to know about human-centered design? Uh, I read emails. That was it. Uh, really? I was I was a I was a freshman who kept track of emails. Um, I actually kept track of emails for myself, but also for others because there's this. Uh, uh, I don't I don't need to name it, but I had this initiative. Uh, you can't find it anywhere where I was trying to just publicize events happening on campus to my network of like fellow students. Because um, I noticed that the, at the time the UT uh, events page did not suffice, uh, mm-hmm. and it's still it's gotten better. Uh, but I mean, it's still it's still plagued by like a ton of repeat events, uh, so you can't really see the unique stuff happening each day that's interesting to go to. Uh, and so I I pay attention to the all different email lists that UT had and actually read read the email emails each day. And one day there was an email um, saying that like Doreen Lorenzo is starting this new center for integrated design and there's going to be some courses on it next semester. And I think it might have had a contact uh, if you wanted to find out more info. Um, it might not have actually, it might have just found her contact because um, I cold call her not knowing she's the like president or ex-president of 
one of the top design firms, if not the top design research firm in the world. And really, you cold you know, call? Oh my gosh! I, I didn't. I, I email. Email. Oh, you uh, email. Okay. Email there, okay. Cold email. Uh, which okay. is slightly more appropriate than a cold call. Yeah. Uh, but I still get hit with the talk to my assistant first, um, and I go talk to the assistant, and the assistant's like, "Hey, this is what we do. This is human centered design." Um, I think I had Googled it, but I mean, if you Google it, it's still kind of opaque. Um, and so actually understanding it, uh, I gave me my definition a while ago that it's like really this one aspect of human centered design is just the community of people uh, who are all trying to understand designing design to make design better. Uh, and so through that conversation with the, the assistant, Michelle, uh, I really, I, I came to understand it. I was like, okay, these are just people that I can learn from uh, and, and become my mentors, uh, while I'm here at this university. And so I took a course that they had the following semester. Yeah. I remember coming across it by accident and like, I came to be, I guess, in the, um, in the program, not the BDB program. Like that was something I applied to later, but, uh, I think I ended up at ITD 101 somewhat by accident because one of our requirements for my arts and entertainment technologies major was to have a colloquium class and one of the colloquium classes got canceled. So then they gave us a list of substitutes <laughs> and out of those eight um, classes that they offered, I'm like, oh, this this thing looks interesting. You know, like it's brief description was like um, using design to innovate. I'm like, okay, I mean, I always told myself if I can bridge creativity with social impact, those were like, that's an area I wanna be in. And like, it was literally a class on that. So I'm like, this is interesting. So I, t I signed up for the class and about like four to five months ago, because this was spring and the class was in the fall and I completely forgot what I signed up for, no idea. <laughs> and then I end up in the class and I'm like, oh yeah, this is what this is about. And Gray was my instructor, which is like the instructor to have. Um, and I remember within the first class near the end of it, and this is something I told Gray also like one-on-one, -on -one, was never Gray gave us an assignment. It was like going out like off campus to um, study the way, like where the Metro bus goes, how people uh, interact with the Metro and um, kind of study the place where you get off. And for me at that point, I was like, well, this is a one credit course. Like, why do I have to put in that much work? Like, what the hell, you know? And then I remember going off campus and the minute like I was there, I was kind of like, this is something different. This is something definitely interesting. And within that one project, I went from like having a mindset of not really wanting to do the work to like being completely hooked on the idea of design thinking within one one class. Um, so that's, I think, that's how I came to know about it. It was like, I think after that class, I was very into the process and that's where I also joined Design for America. Um, that's a but, good origin story too. Is that guava juice you're drinking, by the way? It was some strawberries that I had another drink with, but I figured they'd still be good. So I added some lemonade. That looks, that looks delicious. Um, it's yeah, it's you, pretty, pretty good. Usually whenever I do mango time, I have mango juice, but like, as we are doing this remote, where we don't have the mango juice, but it's good yeah. to see that you're drinking something refreshing in spirit. I, 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 I had listened to a few of your your podcast before really enjoyed it by the way oh, and you. i i was familiar with the the tradition so i did not have mangoes so i loaded up this strawberry lemonade well that that looks beautiful thank you i'm interested to see like how 
like the design thinking courses further, I guess, in got, further your love, I guess, for the field? Because it's one thing for it to be interesting on a surface level, and then another thing for you to like, I guess, like you had said, take a lot of the interesting courses that they had offered. Like, what about the curriculum interested you? Uh, all the electives that you can take that were just these five-week sprints, uh, interesting way to learn where you're, uh, you know, we don't need an entire semester to think about some things, uh, something like mixed reality where you're just going to get a primer on it. Um, that can be five weeks um, uh, in a, in a fast-paced mode where you really uh, learn a bit on that. Uh, and so I had like a course like that in mixed reality and really got to understand how it worked and how it fit into design. Uh, we didn't, we didn't bother going further into like doing a project with it, but I feel like I understand it enough that I could now. And similar, like there's the storytelling for influence, which you might have taken actually. I haven't taken it yet, but I, I know of okay. class, yeah. That one was really nice because you're just literally doing a presentation, um, but having a lot of critique on how the presentation's done and how, how to do storytelling. You took more yeah. classes than that was required of you for the BDP? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. I, I tried to when I could. Um, mm -hmm. I also took outside of Center for Integrated Design, but it was a, the, what the, the CID offered each semester there, I mean, there's just interesting topic courses to dig into. Uh, there's one on Hypergiant Industries was doing a, like an AI design course. Um, and they really like grilled us on knowing some of the boring details of like what the different artificial intelligence terms were. Uh, to really understand how it worked. But I, I mean, I was just talking to one of my close friends on uh, on a data science project he's doing, and I understood everything. So that was really cool to get to get that working knowledge of just how, how to work with it. And I think that's kind of the intention uh, mm -hmm. with those topic-based courses. Uh, and then every, uh, you had like longer project-based courses that were just actually letting you flex the, the user the human-centered design muscles and, and do user experience research, that was great. And I think that just, you know, nurtured it. Uh, getting getting to do like 20 interviews over the course of a semester to really understand something uh, better than the client understood it because they just didn't get, get to do those 20 interviews was uh, just a nice, nice thing. I hope to continue that work. Yeah, and the interesting thing um, is that I've, I've heard that human-centered design and design thinking principles have been employed in a lot of technology um, fields and a lot in, in the, into the tech industry because I'm currently working on a project with a couple of friends where we're using the design thinking process. And then he had said that the process that we learned about within our project team is something that is also being applied in one of his internships. And it, and then I think Glory with DFA National had also said that a lot of companies are using the design thinking process and it's growing. Uh, how do you see human-centered design principles expanding in the tech industry, or not just the tech industry, but industries in general? Uh, so over the past three and a half years that I've really been following this, uh, there's just constant articles about the need for design and like, uh, I think like uh, education is one field where they've really 
uh, taking it up because teachers are natural designers. Uh, they're, they're naturally human centered because they're really focused on their students if they're good teachers, of course. So a lot of that's been happening. Um, one thing I push on, back on is uh, design actually having these completely unique like tools. Uh, and so a lot of the, like the, the user research you do is rooted in uh, anthropology. Um, and anthropology is already applied research in, in in a lot of different places, including like the U.S. military. Right. Um, so it's definitely growing, uh, but with it growing, you have a lot of people rightfully saying, uh, I don't know, have you seen the like design thinking is bullshit articles out there? Uh, there's There's been rightful critiques because it's, you know, if, if Human-centered design is a community of people who are practicing a certain things with a set philosophy that you should focus on others, uh, and they have that definition. Um, but then, you're, you know, if you're trying to package this, this is like a toolkit and, and sell it to people. Uh, I mean, it's going to just spread outside that community to communities that aren't going to respect the actual intentions of it and are going to, you know, take all the all the business buzzwords that they can. And suck it out of out of a design process, um, and you know maybe not actually do the do the proper process all the way through, and maybe not right. actually interview as many people as they should be, but still call it design somehow. And maybe uh, I think uh, one thing uh, the DFA mentors uh, have done a good job at is making sure that DFA is is actually living up to the the creative side of this, and, and actually. Mm -hmm going through and making something because design isn't just, you know, coming up with a proposal at the end, you should be trying to, to prototype and make it. And through that process of prototyping and making, making something, you're, you're uncovering more about it. Uh, you're creating error. Um, and you're in response to that error. You're noticing, you're noticing how things can be different. You're just jogging your brain in different ways. Ideally, I think, you know, the spread would be happening in education where they can actually properly train a lot of people on how to how to think differently along these lines you know get people looking with the paradigm of design have that have, have a designer's eye and then you go out into the workforce and then you and then you you know you make that that change there uh, and then if it, you know you spread human centered design everywhere but if it's just if it's just being like packaged uh, to through a toolkit to, to sell to like consultants I mean that's it's gonna end up being something different. Yeah, that, that is true. And I think what you say about the core being the education of human-centered design and how can we educate students on these tools so they can properly implement it in the workforce. Um, I think that is that is important because it's one thing, like you said, for design thinking to be a buzzword. And it's another thing for it to actually be properly implemented. And that could possibly be a fear that you know, oh, we're employing design thinking principles, but like, what exactly does that mean? And are you, are you really? Because a lot of the time, whenever people think about human-centered design, and even in the industry, I've seen that they think human-centered design is just user testing. Once you've done user testing, you're good, you're done. But it's, it's beyond that. It's more than that. It's thinking about that user well before the user testing and actually like interviewing the user. So I think that is that could be a genuine fear of like how I guess how will people exploit the word or the phrase design thinking and how can actually people make sure that they're doing justice to it. 
I guess to bounce off of that, how do you consistently stay in tune with the end user? Because oftentimes um, when I'm working on projects with the DFA or my side projects, I say like, even though this process is user oriented, a lot of the times you can get quote unquote lost in the sauce. So how can you make sure that you're consistently in tune with that user? I got a, I got a quote I want to look up real quick to share in response to this. For sure. Um, Cause the, the, the core that I think it comes down to is what your goal at the end of the day is. Um, if you're just trying to figure out how to like sell something to somebody um, better or how to make something for somebody better, you're going to be only going to be as aligned with that user as you need to be to get, to get, to get to that one goal that you're maximizing for. But I think if you're, if you're actually seeking a, like a relationship, like a lasting relationship with that user, it's not, it's not this business transaction, but like you are, you are, and I say teachers are natural designers. You are the teacher who's going to be in this community with these students who are going to grow up and you're going to see them year to year. And they're going to go back to your classroom when they're older and like, thank you for the work you've done and like for how you've continued to, to be of service to them. Uh, or you're, you're trying to like work on a community, like a, a small business in a community. And, and it's, it's very much, uh, it, you know, you have pre-P customers, the, the regulars, uh, then you're designing for those regulars and, and that, that really matters. Um, and so I, the, the quote is, is like, it's John Seeley Brown. He's one of the Xerox Park researchers that it helps kick off a lot of user research and advocates for it. They were, they were working on like Xerox, just trying to figure out how to make Xerox print tape machines more uh, user centered. Um, but the really insightful thing he says is that in the future, our product will be our customers learning and that companies like Xerox Park, uh, that's, that's a bracket. Um, companies like Xerox Park might sell not products, but rather the expertise to help users define their needs and create the products best suited to them. So it's not even about designing, uh, des like designing a thing. Here's this art specific artifact for user. We are giving it to you. You pay us or you, you thank us for the, if it's volunteer. Uh, and then that's it. That's the end of the day. Uh, I think you really need to think about like the relationship and not what that product does uh, is, but what that product does in regards to teaching the user about themselves, about what they want. Uh, you know, it goes back to the old proverb of like, you can give a man a fish or teach a man to fish or something. And so I think design that's like, you know, you're introducing here, here's this thing. You're like saying like, here's this scholarship program that you're going to have. You're also explaining like why that scholarship program matters. You're, you're, you're arguing something that you've seen talking to people and you're, you're educating them on what they've heard and you're telling them who the user is either through personas or you're actually naming some of the users you talk to and then advocating for that, that group, the, the people with the power to actually design to design accordingly for themselves. And so I, I think that's, that's kind of a right. interesting direction. I, did I answer your question? Yeah. I, yeah. I have this going on. Yeah, I think um, by you know asking that question, like what does that product do rather than what it just is, that's staying in tune with the user. And I think by having that mindset, um, you, you don't really guess, again get lost in the sauce and mm -hmm. stray away from what your what your core message is. Because I've learned that 
the design thinking process at its core is not just about empathy, but it's also about patience. Because within the first interview, you're probably like, oh, I know how to solve this. I'm going to give you that product right now. I'm going to pitch it to you and <laughs> let me know what you think. You know, like it's very easy to do that. What's hard is to not do that and realize that this isn't there's this isn't, isn't just the user you might be designing for. There's a pool of people you're designing for. and You need to hear all of them and make sure that all of them are heard. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think. That's something I'll probably use going into my uh, yeah. going into my next projects. Like, what are we trying to do rather than what are we trying to be? Um, yeah, yeah. And it's just figuring out of that pool of people who to ignore. Like, who doesn't who doesn't need it? Who already knows what they want and what they want isn't is already offered. Right. Uh, versus, like, who can you help educate on? You know how how things could be a bit better for them to help them out, and then be an advocate for that that user. For sure. That yeah. Person. Um, so for you, what has been a key takeaway from, I guess, the three, four years you've been in, been learning about the design thinking process? Like what techniques have helped you and what have you learned about yourself? I can get stupid philosophical and like, like really my, my bias to action is, is actually towards inaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to, I prefer to, you know, be really patient with it and figure out a lot of the details um but you don't always have time for that and you can also that that prevents you from moving forward in a useful way especially digging around the same research uh over and over and over and i guess my takeaway would be uh to have like a healthy mix it's it's so it's so helpful i think if you're designing with a team uh to have have people who think really really fast um and really slow on the team and, and have have that and i'd say like the key takeaway is to just you know find that balance but at the same time not have a team that's like too focused on the process that they're not even moving through the process because they're like questioning everything. There's like the five whys that you can do, uh, which is a helpful way of, you know, learning the ideas behind something. Right. Uh, the, un- the, uh, the unstated motivations that people have, if you ask why, 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 that's great. But you don't want to do that for every little step because then you're just like really getting like stupid philosophical the entire time. Yeah. And like yeah. really like you're, you're like, oh, okay they want to they want to do this because all humans um all humans crave crave like crave attention from others or something yeah uh and that's actually less useful for everyone that is that is true remember when we had the dfa kickoff this semester i had given a presentation on like how uh, how can we can branch off into different areas and this is something i'd gotten from from you and I said that you had to ask why to like to a limit. And I think what people got out of that was like, okay, so you have to keep on asking why, right? And I think that was just like mm-hmm. my error in communication up there because I was like, crap, now like I'm doing the exact thing like professors like Withoff and other professors within the design thinking community have told us not to do. Like you can ask why, but the message has to be ask why but to a limit don't don't get like like you yeah. said stupid philosophical because then you're not really going to get anywhere um and yeah that's that's something should we demonstrate this i was and about to say do the five the let's the five do wise but go way past five yeah let's 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 do it how about, how about you you ask me and then we'll, okay. we'll bounce off of that yeah is there okay is your shirt first of all is your shirt yellow or orange my shirt is yellow 
It's okay. just the lighting in this room is not the best. Why is it yellow? I well, I can say it's yellow because it was the first thing I saw um, in my my uh, closet, and I decided to wear it. Oh, you decided to wear the first thing in your closet? Yes. And it was the yellow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why do you always go for the first thing in your closet? Um, I don't actually. I just go. I went. For, I've been going for the first thing because quarantine's got me. A little bit lazy in how I go about choosing my wardrobe and what to mm. wear. Yeah. What? Why? Uh, why is quarantine making you lazy? Um, it's making me lazy within my uh, wardrobe choices and again what I'm choosing to wear and, and everything else like my work. I'm still functioning um, at full capacity if I must. Um, but in terms of I think answering that question, why is it making me lazy in my uh, clothing choices? Probably because at this point, I just care more about comfort and a lot of the things that are in my closet at this point are like basically loose clothing and not like large sized uh, shirts. A lot of my clothes that I wore at UT are like in my bag. So shuffling through mm. the bag is a little bit too much work. Wait, so you're, where are you right now? I'm right now in Houston. I'm back home. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so you just, you just brought everything in a bag and it hasn't been unpacked? Yeah, it hasn't been really been unpacked. I haven't worn it that much because those are like all my clothes that I used to wear outside. And if I wore any pajamas, like those are now on my hanger because a lot of my clothing is just like sweatpants and like a loose t-shirt or pajamas or like a cotton shorts. Like it's pretty, mm. it's based, my, my life has been based around comfort these past three months. Okay. Um, yeah. I, and that actually kind of like was, was the next why was like, why are you? Uh, basing your clothing around comfort or your life i think i probably correlate comfort with home maybe because not just that actually the reason i'm doing it now is because i feel like when a lot of the this like loose clothing that i wear isn't presentable clothing that i feel like i should be wearing to lectures or uh, to any type of class so the less comfortable clothing for me is the one that i feel like i need that I need to look good in, I'd say, right? But like, I want mm. my clothing to be more on the presentable side, even if it's like, it doesn't have to be like a suit or like a collared shirt, but like of good material. So when I go to class, I'm presentable for the professor and I'm ready there, I'm ready to like learn. Um, here it's more like no one's looking at me, I'm not going anywhere. So it's like 24 seven, just wear wh whatever is in the closet that's comfortable and loose. I guess, let me get super pointed. Why do you not care about uh, people over Zoom? Uh, and and how they see see you dressed? Oh no, we're calling me out. Um, because right now this is just yeah. like a yellow shirt, right? So you can't see, like right now you, you can't see what's underneath it, but what's underneath it it says eighth grade games, right? Oh but, wow. Yeah, but you can't see that until like I pointed it out and lifted it up. Like right now, just a yellow shirt. So if I were to go to class and like people were just to see this part that you're seeing without the title, it'd be totally fine. Um, so it's more so like if I were to wear something really ridiculous um, on the Zoom call, then that'd be something else. Or if like maybe the title was a little bit up on the T-shirt, mm -hmm. uh, but more so like you can't really see what's underneath it. So right now this just looks like a, I hope at least yeah. a regular T-shirt. And why don't you want people noticing anything ridiculous on you? Again, um, I think it's more about like the way I, I present myself to professors um, and I want to put the right foot forward. So that, that's what it is for me. Again, it's very, it's class oriented in terms of like, the, I guess, the way I 
I dress. Why do you want to put your best foot forward to professors? I think it's important to build a relationship with the people who are educating you and um, make sure you're really like understanding what they're teaching you and respecting their time. I think it's more of a respect thing for professors. So that's that's what it is for me. Yeah. I think that's like a cool place that the, the five boys can go. Yeah. Because uh, it seems like you're really caring about like building relationships with others and uh, you're you're trying to dress accordingly, according to how you think you can best build your relationship with others. Right. But I feel like that's right. a five way. Uh, that's that's the type of why is that can work again. There are also the ones yeah. that may not. I think that going yeah. down that loop like we just did for well, about five, six minutes. I mean, I, I thought that was I thought that was fine because like I yeah. th- you kind of targeted something that. I very much like, like me not dressing up in the house is is a thing. I just wear very casual clothing on. But how do you how do yeah. you how do you think that went? I think it went pretty well. Uh, I think if I ask you one more why, which is why do you want to build relationships with others, it could maybe get in like a really interesting direction, or it could completely right. fizzle out. Like my bias would be that the interesting direction would be like, oh, I need to, like I need I need. Well, yeah, actually, let me just ask you, why do you want to build relationships with professors i think for that it's um like again it's a respect thing and that's um i don't just want to you know get get in the knowledge and leave right like for example someone like uh like gray uh i'm not i don't think i'll be taking classes with him in the future but he is someone that i also heavily respect and i want to maintain that relationship with um, so when it comes to maintaining that relationship, I want to maintain a respectable relationship with people who have who've educated me and helped me in um, progressing my knowledge on specific areas. It could it could get really like deep and really philosophical and like asking why's and why's. It could sometimes yeah. like I think also get you off the base of maybe what you're trying to do because like you ended on one the whole the point is like you hope to start with one thing and end in another area right that you didn't expect yeah. to end up in but sometimes it could be something so it could be something absurd or philosophical then you're kind of like okay like where exactly do we go from here the whole reason that i was asking you like if i were trying to design like a better closet for you and i come out with this like oh you need to have better relationships with certain professors at that point, it wouldn't even seem like it matters to build a better closet because we need to like actually focus on you building a relationship with the professors. And I think that can like maybe be useful in pinpointing who you actually want to design for, like why, what motivations you want to design for. Let's get to uh, I think let's get to DFA. I think that was again like I mentioned at the beginning of this pod. Some that's that's the place where you and I oh, got, yeah. got to know each other. Uh, Talk about a little bit about your experience with Design for America and how you came to helping build that organization with Shamik and Brooke. Shamik and Brooke invited me to do DFA um, because Lansing had an office uh, where you could study and eat cookies and abuse the free printing privileges to print mm-hmm. like over 30 pages a day. And I would do that a lot. And Shamik and I think I Brooke too would have also been there. Um, so I knew them, like, literally through that office, Shamik was just some random kid I met. Because um, <laughs> uh, you're younger, so I'm going to always call him a random kid I met. Um, I, I, I think just, like, talking to people in the office and ranting about design or, or something made him aware of it and him interested. And so I was the person that they went to when they wanted to start this whole studio. 
along with uh, some other some other people like Grace, uh, right. who ended up being part of it, uh, part of like the inaugural exec board, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was uh, that's how I got in. I was like, this is great. I wish I knew about this. It had fizzled out. It existed in my freshman year actually, but it fizzled out. My understanding is it fizzled out because they got very like architecture focused, and then they just didn't recruit. Yeah. Architects in. And so like if you're already being like super niche that way and then you don't get the next class in to join then you then you've lost it but uh i mean this new studio is like super multidisciplinary multidisciplinary and everyone's from everywhere yeah yeah Uh, i'm i'm definitely excited for like this this like the team that we had previously um i think the the goal we all had in spring 2020 recruitment was making sure that these are all genuine hardworking people like those two qualities yeah. have to go hand in hand you can't like you can't do one over the other you can be hardworking but also you can at the same time you know not be the latter so with that i think mindset that we had that Shami Brooke you and i had going into recruitment that helped in like genuinely building a solid team like we had some kickass projects yeah this semester so um yeah I'm, I'm definitely excited to see where we can go you had a you're work- excited to see where you can go and you're the i'm the studio like, yeah. studio lead yeah it's, it's both right for you to be excited but it also feels wrong <laughs> you're okay i'm we- in charge now i'm so excited <laughs> well I'm, i am excited for y'all though i i yeah. think you and Albert are going to do a great job. Yeah, Albert uh, and I are. Uh, we we've met with our with our t- leadership team, and um, we've we've had some ideas. Again, the word I, I'll use is excited, but we we've we genuinely have some ideas that we're excited about, and we're we're excited to go about executing soon. So that's um, yeah, we'll we'll see how the year goes. But you had worked on a national project. You were the national yes. project lead yes. for technically. Yes. Yes. Okay. I was co-lead with Grace. Co-lead, um, right, and then, right. Yeah, which I, I I'll always add because Grace did did a good job as mm-hmm. co-lead. Uh, I think there is like oh like the last month of it, I might have been more lead lead just because she she'd been out for some stuff uh, that happened and you know like literally out of the country for a week mm-hmm. and I, I I around then they kind of started emailing me alone and were like hey how's it yeah like what are the updates and everything so. That was the, it was a good project. I actually emailed recently hoping to hear back on just how the implementation's going. Cause I imagine a lot of, a lot of funds are harder to come by. Uh, I mean, so we were looking at lifeguard recruitment and retention because, right. because they, they just couldn't pay their lifeguards more because, you know, if you start to increase pay enough to challenge like the city of Austin, which was doing 15 an hour living wage, uh, then you're not uh, able to keep the hours up. You're not able to do that. I mean, they're a small, they're, I mean, they're not small, but they're a nonprofit with a small budget uh, in comparison to some of the other things like the city where they can, you know, get taxes and everything. Uh, and what actually had happened in, in I want to say it was Dallas area had increased pay, but then they just like, like it backfired. They like ran out of budget for it. Um, and it's it's is it Albert and I had talked about this. It was interesting doing this and kind of being brought in as as design workers who are technically trying to like find a way to design around raising wages, which feels kind of feels kind of irksome because if it wasn't a 
if it wasn't a nonprofit that was like just honestly trying to provide a lot of services to this to the to the local community, um, then it would feel very if it would it could feel very slimy. Like if we had been working for like some like the Amazon or or Uber of mm -hmm. of lifeguard private private lifeguard parts or something, right. uh, then that would have been like super screwed up to to try not raising their wages uh, and designing some something so that we can recruit and retain them another way. But it, but it, I mean, it was, I want to say it was like kind of needed. Like they they had the small budget, they can't. I I, I say all this because like the ironic thing is, we're interviewing lifeguards and we find out that it's a great work environment. There's not much you can do at the YMCA Austin to like make it like a significant, like it's, it's already like a really positive place to work. Like the people like it and, and like the, the like lifeguard managers and just other people we talk to are really invested in their lifeguards. And, you know, they're, I, if I could, if we use this like really broad term of designer, like they're like leadership was practicing human centered design on their workers. Like they weren't just it like impersonal bosses. They really cared. So our our thing that we were trying to you know push wasn't wasn't for them to do some specific thing like they're they they can do more event stuff that's all great but you know we 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 were like oh you can do an event based on this and it, it's that's actually something that they ha happen to be doing so what was the real need well we had interviewed a lot of lifeguards just around around like in general too like we interviewed like UT lifeguards there's some who like really don't care about the money either uh, mm -hmm. if you're doing a wage increase and it's like a relatively privileged lifeguard who's just doing this job because like they have their friends doing it it's a great way to make some side money yeah it might be saving a bit for college but it's also a disposable income thing for them they, they you know you don't necessarily need to give them the, the wage increase and so that, that is like just one issue we identified with the wage increases in general is like the pain was in in people who loved that job, people like who thought it was a great job to have, but just, you know, they're setting aside money for college. They're setting aside money for a technical school or trade school or any sort. Mm -hmm. um, they want to become like EMT stuff, EMT moving forward, but they like, like this lifeguard job. Um, but ultimately they're looking for the best financial opportunity for them to save for later. That's where we, we ended up saying like, okay, look, they, there needs to be some way to pay them more. Not necessarily because they're like more deserving uh, because like they're, I mean, everyone's hypothetically putting in the same amount of work, but because they are the ones who have to, who are leaving. You know, you can't retain them because they're gonna go to the city because it pays slightly more. And even if the city's not as good of a place to work because they have like weird surveillance stuff that they do just to test the lifeguards. Um, it's going to be like a just a, a, a cold hard option for them to have to make. But you know, how can you package this into something that makes sense, uh, where you actually retain them for the set amount of time that you want to retain them? Is you know, put a scholarship in place that you have access to after you've been around for a certain amount of time, and and take that behavior that they had of already saving money for college, and allow them to save money in a match system. So it's like invest in me, invest in you where the money is matched. And we like really like were scrambling at the last minute, just trying to work out the mouth on this and how it could work. Uh, and ended up coming up with something that, you know, satisfied for the final presentation and felt good. But really, I think what mattered most about this uh, wasn't the final product that we 
sort of presented of the final proposal of like, here's the scholarship, here's how it works. Here, we tested it with these people and thought, here's what they thought about it and they all liked it. And everyone liked that presentation. But what mattered most was that the, the people who already cared knew that they, the, the managers who already cared were in that presentation kind of educated on, you know, this socioeconomic disparity that does play out among their lifeguards. And then they, yeah, I think they, we kind of like made them a bit more woke in the sense that they're going to, they're going to be attuned to that, that the, they're going to have some people who, who may, may really love the job and, you know, they can do everything that they want to be like best experience possible, but they, there's going to be this like cold, hard natural reason that they're going to move elsewhere. So, I mean, we're proposing a scholarship, but really the thing that we're, we're doing with that project was, was, you know, identifying who the focus needs to be on because they, they just didn't have that. Right. And that wasn't, that wasn't in the discussions in it before. The discussion was kind of on the prototypical lifeguard who's like, you know, like the golden boy who, who has a lot of stuff worked out for them. So. And, and you said you had reached out for implementation. So how is that going? I uh, haven't heard back, actually. I'm going to get a pester them further. Okay. Um, is, this is relatively recently that I just mm -hmm. wanted to check in because uh, the, the implementation that was going to happen was, you know, writing certain grants to get scholarship money, apportioning funds a certain way um, so that they could start implementing this. Um, that all seems like it would function normally, but I mean, I don't even know if the lifeguards are currently working at like full hours or anything because everything shut down so yeah yeah because this this massive disruption that's happening yeah i'm interested to see how the how they'll design around that too because that's a new issue and yeah. i think design is something that you kind of have to keep on thinking about and designing yeah. for the situation so yeah i'm interested yeah. to see how that plays out um, it's a it's it's nice that we pushed like who to focus on yeah because i think especially now that everything's so disrupted and screwed up mm -hmm. uh, by the changes in the world, it, it might be the case that they're just not going to look at a scholarship for like five years because they're like scrambling financially. Wow! But at the yeah. least, at least they're going to have. I, I don't know, but like that could be the case. Yeah. I mean, they're a nonprofit; they're uniquely hit by this. Um, mm -hmm. But it, I, I mean, I do have comfort in knowing that, like, at least they're more attuned to a certain some of their lifeguards now. At least they like they know. Yeah. To to have that consideration. For sure. Um, yeah, that, that was definitely an interesting project and a project that I had followed that first semester to see how, how exactly that went down. Yeah, I, I do remember y'all doing some solid work. So when it comes to, I'm going to, I guess, pivot a little bit, but when it comes to your thesis that you I, I believe <laughs> just recently finished about a month ago, um, why yeah. did you choose to focus on student housing? Oh boy, um, housing always, is always going to matter. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that that's just always going to be around. Understanding housing better, so that I can like all of the things. Uh, you know, I I like to have like radical thoughts about what housing could look like. Like I think it would be so amazing to have a city where you don't have private housing or public housing, where it's just like fluid housing and everyone moves around a lot. Uh, would be such an interesting like provocation, really. Wow. Uh, I can't imagine how that actually plays out, right? Yeah. I mean, like, what would, like, a, a city of, like, the of houseless people look like? I'm, I'm not saying homeless, because technically everyone would have a sense of home in the city right. if you're designing well enough. And so I, it's, I'm just intensely curious about housing kind of along those lines of, of it's such a core human thing 
what can I, and also with the thesis, I was looking at like, what can I uniquely get access to right now? Next year, I'm not gonna have the same level of access to student housing as I had this past year. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the people I know closely enough who would let me into their places to explore this are gonna be graduated. And right. so there's just that practical, pra practical sense of like, I'm gonna do like human-centered user research projects for decades. Um, but this is some, this is the one project that I'm, I really can't do the same way, uh, in the future. What were some key takeaways you got from interviewing students or interviewing residents? Everyone's kind of different was the, I think the, the biggest key takeaway, but I mean, there, there's some like surface level similarities, like a lot of people like natural lighting. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's reflected in how things are made. But yeah, every, everyone, I think the, the, the key takeaway was that uh, in, I constructed a design pattern deck uh, based on the observations, but then also on like a set of questions and how, how people want to organize living and how, how they want to satisfy some of the deeper need, human needs. There's no two people who are going to be exactly the same on that mm -hmm. deck exercise. There would be a lot of people who are really similar, and so it makes sense for to have like large complexes that kind of have offer. Uh, very similar things but what, what what became apparent was that the construction happening west campus right now where they're building new these new developments that are just erasing a lot of the old housing that used to be there that was kind of like mix, missing the missing middle housing of like duplexes uh fourplexes uh, like single family housing that's been kind of converted or always existed as student housing when that's going away and everyone's having the same like cookie cutter room um, we're really losing something because that, I mean, that, uh, and the whole Churchill quote, like, uh, we, we build our buildings and then thereafter our buildings right. change. We, 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 yeah, we make our buildings and thereafter our buildings make us or something. And so that, that, that just gets lost. Um, the other key takeaway is kind of in the renter aspect. I hadn't thought about this before, uh, doing this thesis, but I it really immediately noticed how when you have a building uh, that's supposed to learn over time, it's supposed to adapt, it's supposed to grow with people, you know, you add to the building, you damage it and fix it and all of the stuff that happens. And this is particularly pronounced in these new cookie cutter developments. Um, but it is also the case in, in just any development where it's like constantly being rented out from year to year, you're losing, I, I'm calling it design wealth. You know, over the years that like, you know, things are going to change in a way that adds character yeah. to something, uh, adds a sense of place to something that, that you, you walk in and you know who's lived there because there's like slight modifications everywhere. And there, there's, there's that individuality that, that can be carved through like multiple people. And so I think you don't necessarily lose this with renting. I think it's possible to have like a rented, a rented unit where there's some modification allowed and over the years a lot of modification happens uh such that there's this really rich sense of who's who's been in that place before when they reset it though and they try to make it fit this like specific thing and they like you know clean the walls and paint them and repaint them um that's where you lose the design wealth somebody in 2010 has the same exact room with all the same stuff that's been refurbished to look the exact same way 
as somebody in 2020 and 2021. And that, it, it just seems like a wasted opportunity. It seems like such a shame. Because I, I had read that you're like, you're designing for someone who's not going to be living in your space anymore, you know, or like who, mm-hmm. who isn't going to be living in your space because it's going to take about a couple of years for everything to come through. And by that time, you're going to have a completely new pool of students who have mm-hmm. different takes and have different tastes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you had also stated that when it came to doing your research, people had a different reaction to images and photographs. How does photography have an influence in the human-centered design process? It's quite quite sizable, I think. Um, it's so the definition of design um, that I put forward in there not not human-centered design, but just design. Right. Is having a conversation with oneself as you're making something. And what I mean, what, really what that's saying is that you're intentionally making something. It's not by accident or, or by subconscious, but you're, you're actually consciously reflecting on what you're doing. And there's so many ways to do that. You know, if you're doing like graphic design and you're sketching, the example that this uh, cybernetician gave, and I'm blanking on his name, but he, he gives the example of you draw something on a page and you come back to it later and you're like, oh, like what was that? Like it's kind of like scrib- like scratchy yeah. looking or something. But then you you modify how you're thinking about it. You're having that that it's actually the introduction of error that makes it so interesting. Uh, you don't get that with like a computer program that's like perfectly making something artificially A to B. This is, I mean, in a sense, creativity can be thought of as like different ways of thinking, different uh, ways of thinking that can be brought about by error introdu- introduced. And so photography, you're deliberately framing something. It's 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 not um, it's not a hundred percent factual in a way. It, like we have, you know, we have to have the reflexivity to say, like, I was interested in this. I stood a certain distance from this. I snapped a photo of this. I made this photo. But there's still there's going to be so much error in that alone. What's interesting and what's nice and neat about the photography, though, is it is you're you're snapping a photo of something real that you don't have 100% control over. So I give the example of my thesis. I'm saying, well, I'm taking a photo of this because I thought this was interesting that it was this color, but I didn't notice that this was like this arrangement of, of like the skateboard in the background leaned against a right, and then the clothing draped on a chair was actually like a really interesting thing that somebody was doing in their space. Mm-hmm. But I was initially interested in it because the lighting or something right that's what i noticed at first um but then there's this other stuff happening and so it's that that the i think that's just incredibly helpful for research because you're increasing the you're not just having a conversation with yourself but the world is having a conversation back with you and wow. saying hey here's what you notice and if i just wrote notes about that if i said like they had a table with like three chairs mm-hmm. and it was this color and it was this furnish and maybe I'm feeling particularly um, Marxist that day, and I take note of like how much it costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, you know, I try to make this whole case about them, like the the socioeconomic background of the people who I'm looking at their apartment of. But then I'm looking at the photo later, and I'm like, okay, this table is actually super screwed up with a lot of alcohol stains or stains, like drink stains. Uh, and then I ask them, hey, like, why? Are, what are these things I didn't notice before? It's like, oh yeah, that's alcohol from like all the parties we throw. We do beer pong on this. And then there's this, like, I've learned so much. I'm like, oh, this table is actually like 
it's a nice table and I thought there's this whole commentary on it, but the commentary actually becomes a bit more interesting when they're completely disrespecting how nice the table is um, because they're college students. So that is, there's a, there's a power to the, the photograph right. as an artifact. And again, I think this is something that we've learned in many design thinking classes is it's one of those drills where the professor puts up a picture and they're like, what do you see? What do you notice? And then they themselves are also impressed with the fact that some of the students point out things that they may not have noticed themselves, that they may have not focused on. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I think design thinking is about. Is, or one of the elements of design thinking is not just focusing on what's, I think, focusing on the surface level, but then going beyond and going, like really dissecting mm-hmm. how... Um, really dissecting the problem and or dissect in this case dissecting the image Um, yeah yeah and you can show that back to to your people that you're interviewing the same way and and they and then they respond the same way that the people in the class do and they they inform you about so much more that you just didn't know yeah for sure for sure um well thank you so much for for doing this um my, my i think my my ending question, my final question will be, what is next for the Michael Sanchez? Where is he going and what is he doing? Uh, you know, just trying to trying to pay the bills. Uh, trying to pay the bills and reflect on my, my 50-year plan to, like, you know, radically change uh, the political organization structure of the role. I, I'm currently looking at the non-aggression principle uh, quite quite closely. The, uh, the uh, I mean, the police violence you know, trending in the news right now right. has has a, such a marked history, um, and so I'm trying to connect that to to it's connect back to the notions of non-aggression principle and uh, fully explore what what it means to have a state that's nonviolent and if that's possible in in a technology in our technological world that we have today. Um, I actually think we have a unique opportunity with a lot of technology to surpass some of the geographic restrictions that we had before that kind of did require certain ways of organizing ourselves politically that you know didn't produce the best results and did require it not justify but did seem to require the use of violence against others uh, to coerce them into being like good members of society however you wanted to define that um i mean but it's apparent that that's really bad because it's that there's mm-hmm. so much that uh violence is susceptible to like destroying in in our souls uh so so looking at the non-aggression principle right now and really trying to wrap that into my grand 50-year plan to, to change the to design a better role. Thank you so much again for doing this. And thank, I think from a personal level, uh, it, it's sad that I think at least I didn't get to properly say goodbye because once, you know, Rona season hit, um, things kind of just abruptly changed. The last time I saw mm. you was that um, leadership get together that we all had. No, thank you. Uh, send it, send an invite to the next DFA Expo. I'd love to. I'd love to make it out. I'll probably still be in the area, uh, and can can stop by for that. Mm-hmm.